Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we evaluate the transnational security challenges in Central Asia. Squarely in the center of the Eastern Hemisphere, and yet also the least traveled region in the Asia-Pacific, Central Asia receives far less attention than neighboring South Asia, Russia, China, or the Middle East. While foreign policy wonks are very familiar with Afghanistan, Central Asia, including Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, is home to more than 70 million people and holds a key geopolitical position in the Eurasian landmass. Unfortunately, it's not just a great game in this part of Asia. A combination of transnational crime and violent extremism beset the region and limit the effectiveness of the region's governments. To assess the security challenges present in Central Asia, we turn to CSIS Transnational Threats Project Director Thomas Sanderson. We asked Tom what facets of the region's threats were most concerning. Over the past several years, uh, ending about two years ago, we did a series of projects on Central Asia. My colleagues and I at the Transnational Threats Project looking at militant groups, looking at propaganda by these groups, looking at uh, religious persecution in Central Asia by regimes there, looking at trade and investment across the region, looking at the supply lines to U.S. forces in Afghanistan that came through the rail lines and also the uh, air bridge through Manas in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. So we've had some good exposure there from 2008 until about 2014 with several field visits across the region. It's a fascinating region, but it is absolutely in a very tough spot geographically and with the number of transnational security threats that we're going to discuss now. Um, the regimes there as well don't make it very easy for uh, any efforts to counter these transnational threats. The region shares a very long border with the area's most unstable state, Afghanistan, which is host to the most significant transnational security threats, violent extremism, and criminality, specifically narcotics trafficking. There are other trouble spots within and over Central Asia's borders as well. Tajikistan has the longest border with Afghanistan, roughly 750 kilometers, something that's not quite an advantage at this point. Uzbekistan's border comes in at around 140 kilometers, a lot smaller, but nonetheless still of concern to both of those states that are looking at a nation, Afghanistan, that continues to be unstable, where the Taliban is expanding its control, where narcotics trafficking continues unabated. Turkmenistan shares a 1,000-kilometer border with Iran, while Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan share a very long frontier with China's western Xinjiang province, the site of a lot of violence in recent years between the Uyghur minority there and Chinese security services. In addition to the violence and repression in Xinjiang, we're also seeing ISIS fighters who've been recruited out of Xinjiang, and that's a very significant development as they go to the battlefield in the Middle East and at some point will return. Though many of these fighters uh, from Xinjiang, Uyghur fighters, have taken their families with them, and there's the possibility that they will not return. Uh, no part of Central Asia directly borders Pakistan, but that does not keep militants and illicit activity from moving back and forth between both places. Pakistan itself is on par with Afghanistan, as you know, in terms of transnational threats. It's home to some of the most lethal and disruptive terrorist organizations on the globe today. Central Asian fighters that have found sanctuary in Western Pakistan, of course, represent a threat upon return to their home states. So suffice to say, this is a tough neighborhood with a lot of conflict and criminality. 
Sanderson points out that there is a significant flow of foreign fighters from countries in Central Asia to battlefields in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, and Libya. The Fergana Valley, stretching across eastern Uzbekistan, southern Kyrgyzstan, and northern Tajikistan, has emerged as a key recruiting area for Islamist terrorist groups. Many fighters active in Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan today hail from Central Asia, in particular the Fergana Valley. A colleague of mine at CSIS and I drove to and through this region many times. It was incredibly tense. There's a lot of poverty, a lot of stress, a lot of repression. It's a very difficult place to live and um, form and sustain a community. The most widely known terror groups coming out of Central Asia are the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, the IMU, the best known of them, as well as the Islamic Jihad Union. Other Central Asian fighters battle alongside the new ISIS cell in Afghanistan with al-Qaeda elements in the region, and they're found among the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban. Central Asians have found their way into a lot of the groups across the region. The ongoing violence in the region is pretty widespread. It's cross-border. It's fueled by illicit activity, and it's enabled by the distrust and competition between Central Asian regimes and more powerful regional governments. And that's only one side of the terrorism problem for Central Asia. I'm sure all of the listeners are paying quite a bit of attention to the 40,000-plus foreign fighters from over 120 countries that have gone to the battlefield in Syria, Iraq, and Libya since the Arab Spring began in late 2010, but more so in the, in the later part of 2011. The skills and experience these extremists acquire fighting abroad for ISIS and other groups presents a challenge to the governments in Central Asia. How to combat them when they return home? The ongoing violence in the region is widespread, it's cross-border, it's fueled by illicit activity, and it's enabled by the distrust and competition you have between Central Asian capitals and with their more powerful regional governments, the Chinese and Russians, the Iranians, Pakistanis, and others. But that's only one side of the terrorism problem for Central Asia. In addition to the hundreds of fighters who circulate with such devastation throughout Central and South Asia, there are many hundreds, if not thousands, that answered the call to battle by ISIS and the Nusra Front in journey to the Middle East and Africa, North Africa in particular. These are among the 40,000 or so foreign fighters, as we call them, that hail from 120 countries that have gone to the battle in Syria and Iraq and Libya since 2011. Uzbeks and Tajiks are the most active among ISIS and Nusra. There's even an all-Uzbek group within the Nusra Front called the Imam Bukhari Jamaat. Kazakhstan is not untouched by this. They report that of their 300 citizens who've gone to support ISIS, half of them are women, which is a significant concern. One of the best-known cases of a Central Asian joining ISIS is that of Colonel Gumarad Kalimov, who defected to ISIS from Tajikistan. He was a special forces commander, claims to have joined ISIS because of the restrictions on Muslims in Tajikistan. He's since been gravely wounded. We don't know what his actual condition is at this point. But as feared, a lot of fighters, foreign fighters, are returning or have returned already to Central Asia. A lot of them are returning, we've been uh, told, because the salaries for them have been cut or all but uh, taken away as ISIS has lost territory and revenue. But the big problem, of course, is that they are returning with urban combat skills, bomb-making experience, street credibility, networks, and a deep sense of empowerment and legitimacy from what they've done. They're heroes to many at home who may not have 
been able to go but would like to go. And so they are now inspired in a much greater way and can come in contact with these returning fighters. These skilled, networked, motivated, inspirational fighters would be a tremendous match for the security services in the region. Security services that are unaccustomed to the kind of intense urban warfare we've seen in Aleppo and other places. You can imagine how fighters returning from battle southward in Afghanistan and Pakistan might team up with those coming back from the Middle East to attack weak Central Asian governments and sow the kind of havoc we've seen in Afghanistan. Let's also not forget that two of the three men who attacked the Istanbul airport on June 28 of this year were Central Asians, one in Uzbek and one from Kyrgyzstan. Transnational crime, trafficking, and corruption present their own set of challenges for the region's governments, particularly in an area with such porous borders. Tom shares details from fieldwork at the border on the Panj River between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. As far as crime is concerned, it's rampant throughout the region. Central Asia has long been a conduit for narcotics trafficking heading north from Afghanistan into Russia and on to Western Europe. Very high levels of corruption across Central Asia ensure that that profitable, highly profitable trade is not about to cease. We also have human trafficking through the region and the trafficking in antiquities. I made one visit driving down from Dushanbe to the Panj River Bridge and into Kunduz, Afghanistan a few years ago, and I talked to the border guards there and the police and intelligence folks, and they said that they were seeing a lot of trade in antiquities come over the border, narcotics and people as well. So you have a lot of different things that come over the border. And of course, high levels of corruption ensure that you're going to have that continue. You also have a shrinking Pond River, which makes it all the easier to cross the border. So a lot of problems in this region. Because of its large landmass, the population density in Central Asia, at 45 people per square mile throughout the region, is less than a third of the world average according to the United Nations data. By comparison, neighboring China has a population density of over 370 people in each square mile of territory, and the United States has around 85 people per square mile. But what is it actually like to live in this region? We asked Sanderson to discuss the impact this criminality and violence has on everyday people. He argues the reality of low economic growth and instability makes for a difficult situation. The human development indices for the five Central Asian states vary significantly. You obviously have greater wealth up north in uh, Kazakhstan, but across the region you do have a lot of poverty, Tajikistan in particular. In fact, that country ranks either one or two in terms of how uh, much of their GDP is made up of worker remittances. You have thousands of Tajiks who are working in Russia, Kazakhstan, and other places. I've been on flights from Russia down into Central Asia and from other parts of the region into Tajikistan, into Dushanbe. And these are flights with returning workers. I've been the only non-worker on some of those flights, and you really see it in, in such stark relief there. So there's a lot of economic distortion that is wrought by this trafficking, by the corruption you have in the region. And this is a dangerous thing because it leaves people open to engaging in more illicit activity. Um, criminality is often an on-ramp to uh, violent behavior. If you're moving illicit or illicit goods across the border, you can often be brought into more um, hardcore activity, bringing fighters across the border, bringing weapons across the border, bringing uh, drugs, of course, that would be included in the illicit trades. So when you have all of these features, and they're pretty awful features for Central Asia, um, it impacts these already struggling communities. Economies are distorted when criminality plays such a strong role in the, in the GDP. 
production. I'm thinking of places like Mali in West Africa, in parts of uh, the Philippines, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And whenever you have criminality playing such a big role, that puts communities in jeopardy, families in jeopardy. It's dangerous work, obviously. Um, There's a lot of competition, and it's violent competition between regimes. There are entourages between criminal gangs um, by all sorts of entities in the region that are vying for control of the drug trade, of the human trafficking trade, and other types of trade. Um, And these are obviously very negative uh, in their impacts on society. So Central Asia suffers a lot in this respect, and I don't see any sort of good news on the horizon in this respect. And what of U.S. interests in the region? Most scholars point to energy security and stability given its key geopolitical location. The deterioration of U.S.-Russia relations in recent years, among other factors, has raised the degree of difficulty in working with Central Asian governments, because each was previously a part of the Soviet Union. Yet some promising initiatives have emerged from U.S. competitors to elevate trade and modest economic opportunity in the region. Despite the threats and the facts, the region remains a low priority for the U.S. government. You're right to point to energy and stability as some of our key concerns there. I'd like to start by offering a a conversation or recalling a conversation I had with a senior member of the White House's national security team several years ago. After laying out to this individual what I thought were the significant elements of Central Asia's importance to the U.S., including Central Asia's location right next to one of our biggest problems in an area of our biggest commitment of forces, and that's Afghanistan, but also Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China. This is an area that's truly in in the heartland of Eurasia and the largest landmass on the planet, surrounded by nations that we have a lot of troubled relationships with, but also major trading relationships. Uh, We do $600 billion a year in two-way trade with China. So we have a lot of interest here. But nonetheless, I I laid out these elements, the energy, the terrorism, the trafficking, the powerful, troublesome neighbors, neighbors, the big trading relationships. Um, And despite all of those elements that I think leave Central Asia in a very important position, this individual said the reality is they are a third-tier interest for the United States, Central Asia. And I was shocked to hear that. And that, of course, is at a time when we had our forces in Manas Air Base and a much greater commitment to Central Asia than we do today. Uh, But nonetheless, even with a reduced presence in Central Asia, our interests, I don't think, have uh, reduced uh, significantly. Um, Trade, terrorism, Chinese and Russian influence, Iranian influence, energy, regime stability, democracy and human rights. These are things that we find critical to us in other parts of the world. They are critical to uh, Central Asia, and uh, and it, it merits a lot of attention there. Russia in particular has a very strong presence in the region, unsurprising given that all five Central Asian states were part of the Soviet Union. But preventing Russian dominance of these countries um, is important to us. We want to make sure that these countries you know, are free to choose their direction, their alliances, to pursue their interests, hopefully to, to become better at governing and make sure that this country doesn't experience the kind of instability that you see southward in Afghanistan and making sure that the Russian influence there is more positive than it's been uh, is key to us as well. Um, Tajikistan has had the strongest relationship with Russia. The 201st Motorized Rifle Division is there. They recently concluded an agreement with the Russians to strengthen that presence there. 
There are other elements of that presence uh, that deal with um, Russia's space capabilities, both on the civilian and the military side. Um, so, you know, our concern over Russia's presence in the region is significant. China's influence is significant as well. You're certain to be aware of the One Belt, Run One Road initiative that aims to strengthen transport and trade links across the region. That's a very good thing. We want more trade. We want more transport in the region to bring some of these economies up. Um, but making sure that China's influence in this region is wholly positive is also of interest to us. The Chinese have put down a lot of money, 50 to $60 billion, to make sure that this modernized Silk Road uh, instability is uh, successful. Energy and security has also been very important. Turkmenistan is a major gas producer. Kazakhstan is a major oil producer. Uzbekistan has uranium. Uh, so a lot of energy and pipelines cross this region, and we want to make sure that we're part of this activity and that the Russians and the Chinese do not dominate it. China has played a, an important role in some of the security issues there. I know we'll get to those in the next uh, question, but making sure that we have a voice, a presence, that Central Asian states have more choices than just Russia and China as partners is important to us, and making sure that Afghanistan's ongoing instability does not move northward more than it is already and does not jump the border in a greater way than it has uh, t today. Those would be paramount among our interests. Regional government's efforts to address the transnational security challenges have been limited, with most effort focused on counterterrorism through organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Sanderson explains that capacity is underdeveloped and trust among the regimes is even lower. On the criminal side, the complicity of government regimes in various activities presents a stumbling block. Well, as a region, I would say that they're, they're certainly more concerned with the activity of terrorist groups and militants and radicalization than they are with criminality. Um, let's just focus on the terrorism side. With, with the SCO, along with other partners, Russia and China, and of course, uh, India uh, appears to be on, on the way to becoming a, a, a full-time member um, in other nations as well. Terrorism and militancy is a concern they all share and something they should all uh, be working on. The SCO does address this through the regional anti-terrorism structure, RATS, and that is good, but these are countries that do not trust each other. These are countries that don't have a tradition of information sharing. Uh, so getting nations to cooperate on the kind of at the level they need to in order to prevent cross-border movement, which means harmonizing police and intelligence exchanges, that's very difficult to do. You see how much trouble we have doing it with Europe and how much trouble Europe has doing it. And those are countries that do trust each other. In Central Asia, you have countries that dislike each other tremendously, that don't trust the Chinese, that don't trust one another, that don't trust the Russians. So the SEO is an important body in addressing these, but the relationships are so strained that I don't think you have the you, we, we certainly know they don't have the, the kind of um, uh, trust levels and information sharing levels and technology to do what they need to do in order to better prevent the movement of militant groups. On the criminal side, that's very difficult, of course, when you have such high levels of corruption in Central Asia where there's a disincentive to stopping the flow of narcotics and other criminal activity because of the benefits that accrue to um, favored communities within those regions. And, and that's, of course, a, a longstanding stumbling block and one that I do not think will really be treated in any significant way. 
For the United States, the challenge will be to keep tracking Central Asia's threats despite a myriad of other matters requiring attention around the world. Well, I would just add and encourage people to not overlook Central Asia's importance. They are in the center of the Eurasian landmass. They are surrounded by some of the most important influential countries in the world today, Russia, China, India, Iran. Uh, This is an area that we should, as Americans, have a presence. We should be doing all we can to um, promote democracy with the understanding that you, you need to account for the histories in these regions, the traditional tribal structures, and other elements that may not be um, susceptible or amenable to the kind of democracy that we have promoted in other places. Um, it's important not to let this region um, fall victim to the kind of instability we've seen in Afghanistan and in Western Pakistan. So I hope we do treat it as a tier one or tier two interest and not a tier three interest, Um, but with limited resources and limited attention spans, I think that'll be difficult to get there. It's important, but I think it is going to remain, unfortunately, on the back burner for the U.S. for the time being. That's our show. Thanks to CSIS Transnational Threats Project Director Thomas Sanderson for providing his in-depth analysis on the security trends in Central Asia and his fieldwork experience in the countries of that region. You can track TNT's work on CSIS.org and follow Tom on Twitter at TomSanderson98. If you're interested in learning more about the multifaceted challenge of global terrorism, be sure to check out TNT's project on ISIS's foreign fighter advantage and the CSIS Human Rights Initiative's new podcast, Countering Violent Extremism. The audio for this podcast was edited by Francis Berkham. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org or KajdAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking maritime analysis in Asia. Also be sure to check out our new China Power podcast. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.